tonight's topical study. We are done with fear and melancholy. That is wrapped up. And now, this is, uh, this is Josh's last topical study ever with us. Yep. This is the last one. Last one for a bit. He'll be coming back after the summer. But before no, he no, leaves... You, you're supposed to go along with it for longer. I was going to uh, wait till the very end. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just... I can't I can't deceive our gullible audience. That's true. <laughs> He's like saying true. with the chat. He's just already what? Okay. Um tonight we are going to be talking about epistles. Tonight's title is Letters from God, Understanding the Epistles. This will serve as a uh form of introduction to Philippians, which is going to be covered by Graceful Engagement and Josh's absence. Josh is going to pray for us, then get into the meat and potatoes of it. Just take it away, really, whenever you feel like it, Josh. All right. I might not feel like it for a while, so everyone just be patient. Um, the epileptic cat gif is messing. I, I, I got to close chat. All right, closing chat. We're going to get started. Um... All right, yeah, I'll explain more about my absence at the end and what will be happening during that time. I've explained it before, but if you don't pay attention or haven't been here, then you don't know what's happening. So I'll go over it when we're done. So tonight we're not looking at a specific text in depth, but rather more of a overarching idea that influences how we understand and interpret texts. So we're going to be dealing with the subject called hermeneutics. That's a fancy word for uh, our methods of interpreting a text. Specifically, uh, biblical hermeneutic would be one that both derives itself from scripture and then is used to read and understand scripture. But specifically tonight, we're going to be looking at the letters or the epistles. Uh, these are the books of the Bible that compose a very large portion of your New Testament. All of all of Paul's writings are epistles. There are 13 of Paul, uh, what are called the Pauline, as a result, uh, who wrote it. Uh, the Pauline epistles. Um, then you have the general, what are called the general epistles, which would be things like First and Second Peter. Jude, uh, Hebrews, if you think that Paul didn't write it, I am inclined to think that if he didn't write it himself, then it was a sermon he preached that was written by, copied down by someone. Or Anyway, um, not overly relevant to that anything. Um, so yeah, the, the, the general epistles. Uh, then you have the book of, of uh, Re- Revelation, and which is technically a epistle, uh, actually a, a seven epistles, really written by Jesus himself to the seven churches, and then uh, what's the, the genre would be apocalyptic 
or revelatory or prophetic uh, for the rest of the book. So that's almost all the New Testament. And then you have, of course, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, which are all historical narrative about the life of Jesus and then the early church. So the epistles make up a good chunk of your New Testament. If you're reading through your New Testament, then you're reading through a lot of epistles. And understanding the epistles is very significant. They're often both the easiest and hardest for different reasons for people to read. So we'll be looking at why that is, looking at the features of an epistle, what makes it one, how is it distinct from other genres in scripture, and then what are the best practices we can adopt to interpret and understand them uh, rightly. And part of why I'm doing this before I leave is so that you all are equipped to hold the people who will be teaching in my stead accountable and to give them good and honest and legitimate feedback on how well they're doing because they need it. Now, I I will be lurking in the shadows, uh, not in a weird way, but... (laughs) I might not be here, but I'll be listening to the recordings if I'm not here, and we'll be giving them feedback as well, of course. But uh, we're we're going to give everyone some practice at something new here, and that will be part of it. Will be giving the person teaching more than just a question to answer, but feedback on how they did. Um, and and did they handle a text well? Did they teach it well? Did, did were, were they using sound principles of of hermeneutics? Um, so no pressure on the guys. Uh, obviously, if 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 things go really really sideways, one of them starts spouting off something crazy, then uh, I will intervene. But I don't expect that to happen. I wouldn't be letting them teach in my stead if I thought that was going to happen. So, no worries there. But not just holding them accountable, but anyone that you listen to. You need to understand the basics of interpreting Scripture so you can spot when someone is trying to twist Scripture to fit some kind of point or narrative that isn't true. Because if they can get the Bible to support them, then they've got God on their side. So who can argue with it? And you all have seen lots of goofy examples of people trying to do that in bad ways, but um, the more subtle twistings are always harder to catch. That's what makes them subtle. All right. I'm going to start teaching the whole thing if I don't stop for a second. Let's pray, and then I will get into the... uh, substance of what I'm going to say. So let us pray. Lord, thank you for speaking to us with clarity in your word. Help us to understand it. Amen. All right. Here we go. My allergies have been acting up today, so I keep having to pause to sniffle and hopefully not sniffle into the microphone. So I apologize in advance. What is an epistle? It is a letter. 
It's a letter written uh, in, in biblical terms in the Bible. Uh, a biblical epistle is, again, one of these books I described, either Pauline or the general epistles, James, 1st, 2nd Peter, Jude, 1st, uh, 2nd, 3rd John, etc. The epistles um, are these letters that are written by one of the apostles to a specific audience for a specific purpose. And all that's significant. But they are also God speaking. So I title this Letters from God. God is speaking in these letters just as authoritatively as when Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, as when he spoke to Moses from Mount Sinai. He is speaking just as vividly, just as loudly, just as authoritatively in these epistles as he spoke in those places. And when you treat them and approach them that way, that changes the way that you you look at them. It changes the way you handle them. It changes the way that you interpret them. And it's not my goal tonight to demonstrate that the epistles are inspired. I'm assuming it for the moment, for the sake of teaching this, and that those who are listening agree with me. If you have a problem with that idea, then we can talk about it later. But not the goal tonight. We're just going to assume we're all on the same page there. That the epistles and the Bible are breathed out by God. And are written by a man. So you have God working through men to superintend from above every word that is written in the epistle such that it is both the words of Paul and the words of God. It's both the words of Peter and the words of God. Which means that they're knowing something about the author helps us understand the meaning of the letter, for example. So just as God spoke through, Moses spoke through, uh, the chronicler spoke through Solomon, David, the writing of Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, just as he spoke through the prophets, just as he spoke through the authors of the Gospels, so too has he spoken through the authors of the epistles. And in each of those cases, he is speaking through these authors in different genres, history, poetry, prayers, letters. So when we think about interpreting a letter, interpreting an epistle, there are things that are unique to that as a genre, unique features that it has that we need to understand to help us understand what it's saying. So let's walk through a couple of those, and then I'm going to try to give, again, a couple of principles to help you understand your Bible better, things to, to think about while you read, while you study, while you take notes, 
while you listen to other people interpret scripture? Are they following these principles and rules? And you might, valid question, why are these the principles and rules that we should follow? One, the principles and rules that you follow when you're interpreting any text. Any text. <laughs> these are sound principles of, of understanding language. Uh, this is what it's it's less so an external principle of language, but rather describing the way that language works to communicate meaning. So really, we're not doing much of a prescriptive business here. We're doing more of a descriptive one. This is the way that language works. These things are components that we use every single time we approach a text or should use if we want to understand it rightly, if we want to know what the author meant which is precisely what we want to know. If this is God speaking, then we not only should want to know what the author meant, but we must. If God has spoken, then we have a duty and obligation and, and should have a necessary compulsion to want to know what has our creator said. What does he mean? So unique features of an epistle to help you understand. One, they have an author and an audience. They have an author and an audience. They're written by someone to someone else. This is not always the case with other works. You have poetry that's just written. You have historical narratives that are written by an author, but the author is not overly relevant to a lot of the meaning of the words. It doesn't matter too much. He's recording history. He's just telling you what happened, and he's not as relevant. His own personality and, and life and context is not as relevant to what's happening. And there's a recipient audience, which informs how you understand what some of the things might mean. What were the issues happening in their day, in their context, where they were, and how is it that what is being written addresses those issues and how is it addressing? These are, these are features of epistles that are unique to them as epistles that we can think about and need to think about. There's an occasion for writing the letter. There's a reason or reasons. In the case of 1 Corinthians, there's a plethora of reasons, many reasons for him writing that letter. Figuring out what that is helps you understand what's in the letter. There are some letters that don't have a very specific reason, but are written as general letters of encouragement. Uh, Ephesians is sort of that kind of letter. Uh, Colossians has uh, um, some of that to it, but it also has a more narrow focus in mind, dealing with some early proto-Gnosticism. Um, heresies and other nonsense that people were teaching. Um, but most of the letters have a, a, a reason they're being written. Letters also have a sustained argument or flow of thought to them. Unlike historical narrative, which is just telling you about what's going on. Though those also can have something of that in it, the way information is presented, the order it's presented in, but it's not 
just wrapped up in the rhetor the rhetorical nature of what's happening with the grammar. When you read a letter, there's a opening, a beginning, a here's what I'm going to talk to you about, and then here's what I'm, and then, and then I do it, and I talk about the thing, and and it goes, and I'm establishing points and proving them and doing there there's an argument being made or arguments and they might be building on each other and so recognizing what they are and and following them and tracking with them helps you understand what's going on in the letter and really is crucial to understanding it there's also a lot of didactic teaching very direct do this believe this don't do that don't believe that whereas extracting what you ought to believe or ought to do out of say the book of Joshua is a lot more difficult do we go and invade the land of Canaan and slaughter the Amalekites no they've already been slaughtered <laughs> So what do I do? What do I do with Joshua? That's a Bible study for another time. Letters, the epistles, have a lot of just straightforward, do this, believe this, don't do this, don't believe that. And in that sense, they're easier to follow. But in the prior sense, where they have a sustained argument and flow of thought, it's a lot harder for us to follow often. Uh, to, to keep track for that long across that many pages. We're not used to that. A lot of us aren't used to that kind of thing, depending on what you're learning and where you're learning it and who you're learning it from. Uh, but typically, that's not the kind of thing we get trained to do. But it's exactly what's happening in many of these epistles, which is why you can read them and feel lost or confused sometimes, or especially if you have... Uh, not our Bible reading plan, but others who just kind of drop you randomly in different parts of epistles and it's kind of, well, that's a bit out of context and doesn't, you can't just take snippets out. You, you've got to really follow what's being said. So you have a couple unique features. You have an author and an audience. You have an occasion, a reason or reasons for writing it. You have a sustained argument and flow of thought that runs through the entire thing. And you also have a lot of didactic teaching. Just here's what to do. Here's what to believe. So not just knowing that those are there, but tracking with them, recognizing them, understanding what they are will help you understand an epistle. So if you walk into the uh, book of Galatians, what's the first thing that you need to find out? Author? audience, reason for writing. Let's look at, put this into practice a little bit. Do you need a commentary to figure this out? Do you need to know all, you know, do you need to have a seminary degree? No, you don't. Um, there are certain cases where it's a little more obscure, a little more obtuse. There are historical things that you're not going to be aware of, but that's okay you can, with the tools available to you as a, whoever you are, 
whatever your background is, you can pick up your Bible. You can understand. You, you you can understand it. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't. Will those things help you grow in a deeper understanding of the Bible? Yes. Are they necessary to understand what's going on? No. Okay. So Galatians 1, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 9 to see if we can, just looking at the first chunk of text in here, figure out those first three main things, author, audience, reason for writing. If you get those down for every epistle in your head, figure out what they are, you're going to have a much better time whenever you turn there for whatever reason, instantly knowing, okay, who wrote it? Why'd they write it? Who are they writing to? And that's going to help you understand it. So Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul. An apostle. Okay, who wrote it? Paul did. Easy. Right there. Which Paul? The apostle Paul. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me. So, co-signed. This is not just Paul writing solo. Uh, everybody has signed on and said, yes. Our, our brother in Christ, Apostle Paul, is absolutely correct. Um, and we, we, we send our greetings along with him as well. So all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Okay, who wrote it? Paul. Who did he write it to? The churches of Galatia. Now that would be a moment where you go, what's a Galatia? Or if you're like me, when I first became a Christian and didn't never heard these words before, I said Galatea. <laughs> if you did that, it's okay. It's okay. You don't knowing how to pronounce Greek words is not necessary to be a Christian. So to the churches of Galatia. Where's that? So you already know it's a, it's a place because the churches are of this thing. I mean, I guess you could think it was some kind of adjective or something that these are churches who are very Galatia, but I think most of us can figure out from reading the phrase region of Galatia. All right, where's that? Well, that's where a commentary, study Bible, study notes can be helpful. Ask your pastor. Ask you know, other Christians in your life who, who might know. Um, that'd be a place where, where you can ask. And it's okay to ask those things. Not everything from there will be very obvious, but the good news is you don't need to know all the details about Galatia to understand the rest of the letter. You don't. Because Paul is going to get, do you a favor. He's going to describe what's happening in the churches of Galatia. 
why he's writing. That's why the the audience is not always super important to understand. There's some cases where it does make a difference. Knowing that Luke's gospel is primarily written to Gentiles helps you understand why, for example, he'll often translate words that would be obscure to a non-Jewish person or ideas or phrases or things from the Old Testament. Um, he'll, he'll sometimes over-explain those a little bit. Sometimes. Because you know from his opening lines in the Gospel of Luke that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. Very Greek name. Appears to be a Gentile. So, sometimes that matters and helps you understand pieces. Um, but it's not the most significant thing. The reason for writing is going to be your most helpful thing that you need to figure out. So we're going to get that here in a second, but he ends his greeting, a very common greeting. Um, feel free to greet someone this way. Uh, just if, if, if any of you greet me like this, it will make my day. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a greeting. So the amen there kind of tells you, okay, greeting's over. It's a little signal. Okay, he's, he's done. He's done with the greetings. Now he's going to get to what he's talking about. So why is he writing? It's usually, you're usually going to find that out in the first couple of sentences. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Okay. Why is he writing? You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Apparently, there are some people within the churches of Galatia who are beginning to believe a false gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So the reason that he's writing is there are some folks who are distorting the gospel, who are dwelling among the Galatians in some way. Maybe they're false brethren going to find that out later in, in the letter. That's what they are. It's the Pseudadelphoi, false brothers who have infiltrated the churches in Galatia and are bringing in this false gospel. But that's the occasion. That's the reason for writing is he's addressing this particular issue. Now, some of the longer letters are addressing multiple issues, Corinthians, Romans, but the shorter letters are often just dealing with one thing. Something like Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. They're usually dealing with a pretty narrow thing because you can read them in about 15 minutes, maybe less. Just sit down and just read it cover to cover. They're not long. 
They don't have the space to deal with a whole lot of different things. So we've got our occasion for writing. We've got our author. We've got our audience. We might not know all the details about all of those things yet. But now we have some information that's going to help us along the way as we read the rest of the letter. Because Paul's going to talk about his life, for example. And since you know that it's Paul talking, you can go to the book of Acts, for example, and read about Paul's life. You can read about the things that he's describing. You can read Luke's account of, of all these things that happened to Paul in the life of Paul. and fill in some gaps. You can help that, uh, help that. Let that help you understand what's happening in Galatians. You can go read other letters by Paul, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, that, that, that will help you understand what's happening in Galatians. So knowing that Paul wrote it helps you know other places to go to help you understand things. Knowing that the audience, the churches of Galatia, could be helpful, again, if you know something about the region of Galatia. Knowing the reason that he's writing is going to help you know what's going to happen next. Because what, is Paul, what do you think Paul's going to try to do next? He's going to try to explain why that's a false gospel. Whatever this, this false gospel is that these people are bringing into the churches in Galatia, he's going to spend the rest of this letter tearing it down. He's going to spend the rest of this letter refuting it and upholding the true gospel. That's what he's going to do. And now you know where he's going, which means it makes it easier to do that next part, following the sustained argument, following the flow of thought. So there's an example of some of those things in practice. We will return to our example in a moment. For now, departing, backing up again, big overhead view, bird's eye in the sky, looking down at all the letters, addressing an issue that's been brought up before in more detail. Do I need to know Greek? Do I need to know Greek in order to understand my Bible? especially to understand these letters that were written in Greek. Because my pastor keeps bringing up, well, in the Greek, this word really has this sense to it and this thing. And so that might give you the impression, oh, if I don't know Greek, can I really understand what this means? And praise God, the answer is yes. Uh, you can understand without knowing Greek. Well, you get the full, again, it's not a matter of can I apprehend what's going on at some level? The answer is yes. Will you get the full depths of everything that you could get if you did know Greek? No. But that's okay. You can read other people who know Greek. You can listen to other people who do know Greek and receive some of that. That's what God gives us teachers in the church for that reason. Because not all of us can take the time to learn these things. We can't. We've got other things that we are called to do in the world. That's okay. Not everyone is called to that task. I don't expect every single person to have an extensive knowledge of all of the heresies of the early church. I don't. Would it be helpful if everyone did? Yeah, absolutely. 
Is it necessary to be a, a Christian, a faithful Christian? No, it's not. Um, and neither do you need to know Greek to be a faithful Christian or to know your Bible, especially with the tools that we have available to us. Especially with that, we have multiple translations that use different, the same Greek manuscripts, but different methodologies that help capture in English the nuances of Greek. So you can do comparative translation reading. So if you're doing a deep study of a text, read it in multiple translations. And read it in both word-for-word and thought-for-thought ones. Not the message. It doesn't count as a translation. I wouldn't recommend the NLT either. But pick up a CSB, even an NIV, maybe one of the older ones, uh, and do comparative reading. You're not using it as your main source. We say, okay, what's the differences between them and why might that be? And if you're really stumped, yeah, yeah, go ask. Your, if your pastor knows Greek, go ask him about it. Is there anything in the Greek that would explain these the drastic difference in translation here? What's going on? It's okay to have those questions. They're answerable. But doing the comparative translation reading will help you kind of see, okay, in English, this is what's the way this is being rendered. So I can kind of understand the the nuance to it and see that this translation over here is getting it accurate. If you have three different translations that all basically read the same, which is slight differences, probably for copyright purposes, someone who works in the publishing, Christian publishing world, that's probably why the slight differences are there. But neither here nor there. It's annoying that translations get copyrighted, but whatever. I know it's necessary for stupid reasons. But um, if, if your ESV, your NASB, your LSB, and your CSB all read almost the same, what it means is there's a pretty strong consensus that they know what the words are <laughs> underneath the hood. Um, and the translators do. They do. They understand Greek. But the word-for-word -word translations try not to. There's some degree of interpretation in all translation work. The word-for-word -word translations, why I'm a huge fan of them and why I encourage people to study out of those is they try to avoid interpreting it for you in the translation. Thought-for-thought -thought ones tend to do that because they are trying, in order to communicate something from a different language in a thought-for-thought -thought format, you're, you're, you're by necessity, have to interpret what you think it means into the other language. Which is why those will flow more smoothly in terms of when you're reading them. But the word-for-word -word ones, ESV, NASB, LSB, uh, even the NET would fall into this category. Those are trying to just show you what's under the hood and let you make the call using sound principles of exegesis and hermeneutics on what it means. So by all means, 
use your comparative translation reading. There's benefits to it, uh, especially if you're studying and trying to just really dig into what it means. However, for your daily devotional reading, I highly recommend focusing yourself on one translation. The primary reason for that is to help you memorize and familiarize yourself with scripture. That's the main reason. So study, grab yourself a couple different translations, or if you don't have physical ones, you can pull all of them up at the same time. There's plenty of online tools for that. Bible Gateway does it. Uh, there's this other uh, site called Bible Arc that I'll mention again in a moment. That's pretty cool. Um, that lets you do that. There's places that will let you do that. And you can si see everything side by side and just see what what's the difference between these. Why might that be what you should not do? If you don't know Greek at all, go digging using online lexicons and trying to fumble your way through the, the definition of Greek words to try to figure out what's going on and what it means. I don't recommend doing that. There's a reason that you hardly ever hear me talk about the Greek. And it's because I don't think I know enough. I've taken two Greek classes. I don't think I know enough Greek to responsibly cite it to back up my arguments from a text. In most cases. There are some cases where I am more familiar with the arguments surrounding the Greek of a text, and so I feel more comfortable doing that because I know I've got backup from guys who know it better than I do. But if I'm just winging it, and no, I'm not going to do that. Um, don't learn just enough Greek to be dangerous to yourself and others. If you're going to learn it, full send it. You got to practice it. You got to know it. Um, I need to try to pick mine back up and learn it. But that requires going back to school for the most part. And I'm not going to do that yet. So you won't hear me citing Greek for the most part very often, if at all. And that's the reason. But do you need to know it? No, you don't. Get a good study Bible. Get a good study Bible. I've got a list in the server uh, that I would recommend. It's somewhere buried in Bible chat. I think it's pinned. Um, if you want to know my recommendations, get a good study Bible, good study notes. Those will help you as well. It'll help you with a lot of that stuff I talked about earlier, author, audience, occasion for writing. A lot of that stuff is in study Bibles right before a book starts. Um, some even have the argument and flow of thought broken down into a, a bullet point format. Don't take study notes as inspired. They're not. They're not. But they're helpful. Those things will help you. You can understand it. If, if you're having a hard time understanding it, there are people out there who have spent their whole lives trying to help you understand it. So take advantage of their work. Use it. Okay, now we get into the last 
three things we can talk about tonight. And the first thing is in a set of three things. There are three concentric circles of context. What, what on earth does that mean? Or the three rules of biblical exegesis, as it is sometimes said, are context, context, and context. Now, that's not repeated simply to emphasize the rule of context. The reason it's repeated is because in each instance, the word context means something slightly different. Let's return to our example in Philippians 1. If I was going to teach on Philippians 1, 6 through 9, for example, then I need to know the context. Because words are defined within a context. This is why, again, I recommend against just going to a lexicon and digging through it because you'll pick any given Greek word that's used often in the New Testament. And there will be nine different possible definitions for it. How do you know which one is being used in the uh, sentence that you're looking at? The context determines this. So you need to know the context. The grammar matters. Figure out the grammatical structure of a sentence, diagram sentences if you have to. Even doing it in English, in the English translation is helpful. But make sure that you are respecting the context when you look at the definitions of words. Words are defined according to their context. You can shove all kinds of definitions into a word. And I'll show you ways in which that can go badly. And end up with the wrong meaning because you redefined the word in the sentence out of its context. So what are these three concentric circles of context? And I say concentric circles because they overlap with each other where you're, you're always situated in all of them at the same time, but you have to distinguish them to help you see them clearly. The, the Philippians 1, 6 to 9 is always within all of these contexts at the same time. It's not that it's ever not in these contexts. But I've got to make a distinction between them so that I can work through them and understand what's going on. So the first one is the paragraph level. And I say paragraph in air quotes. You can see my hands doing the air quotes, but I did air quotes. Because the paragraph breaks and the line breaks in our Bibles are not in the originals. So they're not inspired and we shouldn't bank everything off of them. But the reason I say paragraph level is simply to say that you don't start at a verse level. So if I was wanting to know the meaning of Philippians 1 uh, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I don't start with just verse 8 by itself and go, what does this mean? 
I start with a larger chunk of text. I back up and move forward until I have what amounts to something that resembles a complete thought, which is what a paragraph usually indicates. So when I say paragraph level, don't think I can just follow the paragraph breaks in my Bible and I'll be fine to do that. That's not what I mean. I mean what amounts to a complete, a, a coherent thought that could stand on its own. So that would be something like verses 6 through 9. This is a discernible chunk of language that, that could, be, could stand on its own and, and be a complete, coherent thought. Technically, verse 8 kind of could be that, except it starts with a but. So you see that and you go, hang on, that's a connecting word, which means there's stuff that came before it that matters to understand the rest of it because the author wouldn't have used a word like that if that wasn't the intent so if someone ever quotes to you a verse that starts with therefore and doesn't give you context for it you need to go look up the context before you just trust what they that they know what they mean by it or they know what it means because that's a, that's a very significant word that is whatever comes after that, therefore, depends upon the meaning of it, depends upon whatever came before it. And if you don't have that context, you, you're liable to get that wrong. So start at the paragraph level. Think through, okay, what would make this a coherent intelligible thought and, and you might end up at different places with that and that's okay but the point is to get you seeking the surrounding context what came before what came after i had a professor at seminary one i actually liked one of the few um who suggested my hermeneutics professor he was great um and he suggested even going pretty much within the entire chapter that you're in before you've grasped this paragraph level context. Going before all the way to the beginning of the chapter and then going after all the way to the end of it and reading that and thinking, at least at least reading it to grasp an understanding of, of the text you're trying to understand the meaning of where it sits within that broader context. I, I would encourage that as well. The Second circle of context is the whole body of, of work, uh, of whatever, whatever you're looking at. If it's a letter, then in this case it is a letter, the whole letter. So, so where does verse 8 sit within the context of the whole letter? So there I would be asking questions like, what is the letter about? What is its main points? What is it arguing for? And how does this lend itself toward that end? That helps me understand why this sentence is here. So when you ask, what does something mean? You have to also ask things like, why is it written here? And why is it placed? Why is the sentence here and not somewhere else? Why is it in between the two sentences between? How does it support those two sentences? Words work together 
You don't just rip them out one at a time and go, and this word means this, and this word means this, and this word means this, and now we smash them together. No. There, it's an interlocking thing that, that happens simultaneously, really. So you're asking the question, what do the words mean, and what does the sentence mean, and what does the paragraph mean all at the same time? Because those all help each other in getting an answer to those questions. So you have your whole letter context. Then you have the rest of scripture. The, the rest of scripture. How does this whole letter fit into the whole Bible? And then how does this text, it, where does it relate to the rest of the Bible? Is it quoting other places in the Bible? Is it referencing other places in the Bible? For example, the thing in verse 8 about an angel from heaven preaching a gospel contrary to when we preach to you. Who on earth can he be talking about there? When was another time in the Bible where an angel from heaven preached something contrary to the truth to people? I don't know. A guy named Satan? <laughs> like, th th there's some broader things that he could be referencing here that you can pull from the rest of the Bible. Why is that a valid move? So this is where uh, certain kinds of functionally pagan, liberal Christian scholars would stop me and go, uh-uh-uh, you can't do that. And the reason is because they don't believe that God is the ultimate author of the whole book. But if we believe that God is the ultimate author of the whole book, then this is a valid move. This is an, an established circle of context for every single book of the Bible, that God wrote them all with the others in mind, and that they would be an interlocking and, and interwoven work. It's 66 different and distinguishable works that are all one work, one book. So you think about what are other things in the rest of the Bible, which means that you need to know the rest of your Bible. And use the tools available to you. Cross-references are awesome. If you don't have a Bible with cross-references, get one. But cross-references aren't inspired. Sometimes they cross-reference the things that don't make a lot of sense and don't actually connect well with the text. Sometimes they miss texts that should be cross-referenced with the text you're looking at. That happens. They're fallible. But it doesn't mean that they're wrong all the time. They're right most of the time. And they're helpful because you can see the connections between other parts of the Bible. So there's your three circles of context, paragraph level, whole letter level, and the rest of scripture level. And you work your way outward from the paragraph level, gathering data to help you understand what the thing you're looking at means, the, 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 whatever chunk of text that you've chosen. What does it mean? Well, I need to think about all of these things. Second thing in my list of three things that we have left, following an argument. So we need, in order to do this well, especially with the epistles, we have to remember the things that are not inspired when you're looking at any given Bible that you've got in your hands probably right now, if you've got one in your hands or if on your screen. Verse numbers, paragraph breaks, line breaks. That's where there's space between 
uh, like on my screen, it says, let him be accursed. And there's this big gap of space. The line ends and then it picks up in verse 10 below for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's not an inspired break. It's not. Unless you're a King James onlyist, those breaks are inspired. And KJV doesn't have line breaks. So there's that. First numbers, not inspired. If you primarily break everything up by its first numbers, you might miss stuff. Verse numbers are helpful. They're helpful tools to navigate the Bible quickly and easily. They're helpful tools for memorization. But they are arbitrary decisions made by fallible, sinful men as to where they go, where those numbers go, and how the sentences are broken up. They're not inspired. They're not breathed out by God. So in Bible Gateway, for example, you can turn them off. Great. If you're studying a text, you can turn almost all those things off and just have the biblical text in front of you. It's, it's a great tool. There's a little gear at the top. You can turn off footnotes. You can turn off verse numbers. You can turn off headings. The only thing you can't turn off is uh, the line spaces. You turn everything else off. And you just have Bible text in front of you. And when you're following the argument, that's the most helpful way to, to try to follow it. So I mentioned Bible Arc earlier, and it's a website you can go to, um, BibleArc.com. There's a stupid thing that shows up at the beginning that's like, get started, have an account, you don't need to do all that. Um, It's free. It makes you take a little tour. It's annoying. Kind of shows, but well, you should take the tour. It's not a super easy to use tool, right? It's not intuitive necessarily right away. Um, so if you read and follow how to do it, uh, it was created by one of my professors from seminary that um, it, it's a cool tool that is accessible to someone who doesn't have a ton of knowledge necessarily, but also very helpful for someone who also does have tons and is a scholar and wants to do all this other fancy stuff. You can use it in a very simple way or really fancy way. You can parallel multiple passages together. You can set the Greek side by side with the English. Um, it's got lexicon stuff built into it. Uh, yeah, it, it's got some really cool stuff. And then you have uh, arcing when you hit a, when you create a discourse, the discourse module, which uh, helps you show, try to trace and track the flow of thought of scripture. So I had to do a bunch of these for my class. They're actually kind of fun. I, I thought they were fun. Um, so it's a really cool tool. Not necessary for you to use. I don't use it today. I probably should. Um, it, it's helpful. I, I just I tend to do my notes on paper. I like doing it on paper. So. But I, I still do a similar practice. Um, if you ever have seen my notes, which some of you I think actually have, um, whenever I'm actually just exegeting a text, I will still break it down into these logically connecting 
short chunks and then try to think through how they build upon each other to come to the conclusion that the author is coming to. This is something I would have to do a whole series of lessons on to really show you how it works if I was going to try to teach it to you that way. The main way I try to teach this is by modeling it in my teaching. And so my hope and prayer is that the guys who will be teaching over the next 12 weeks and Justin as well have not just picked this up from me, but from the other sound teachers who also do this that I know that they listen to and that they have been uh, influenced by and that they will be able to show you in their teaching how you can follow the, the, the thought process of what's being said and how that helps you understand the meaning. Um, so for the sake of everyone's time and sanity, I won't go into much more depth on that uh, subject. But the key there, though, is remember what's not inspired. Subheads, chapter numbers, verse numbers. Those aren't breathed out by God. And so if you use those to break the text apart in your head into its logical chunks, you might miss stuff. I've been bamboozled by this myself when I'm teaching in the when I when I've been teaching in the past. It happened not that long ago where I just missed a huge point simply because a chapter number broke apart the flow of text. And I missed something that was pretty significant to understanding the meaning because it came in the previous at the end of the previous chapter. I just missed it. So if you're trying to follow things especially in an epistle, get rid of those chapter numbers, get rid of those verse numbers, get rid of those subheads, and try to follow what is being said, how it's building up to a conclusion. All right. Finally, bridge building, or what's the use? How do we take a letter Let's take Timothy's a great example. It's kind of the poster boy example for this. Paul wrote a letter to his dear friend and disciple, e disciple, follower. Uh, disciple's a weird word because we use that. Anyway, uh, to, to the kid that he taught how to be a man and how to be a pastor. He writes this letter to him. And we take that and go, God was speaking there authoritatively to all of us in that letter. And we need to make use of the meaning of the words that Paul wrote to this one guy in all of our individual lives. And in our lives collectively as body of Christ and then carry it out into the world and do something with it. Well, how on earth do we do that? And the answer is a bit complicated. Uh, and again, I'm hoping it will be modeled more so over the next few weeks than I can just go into words here about it because it would take me hours to do so. 
and it's a soapbox of mine that I like to hop on. The meaning and the use of the text are not disconnected from each other. That you haven't fully understood the text until you figure out what it's for. And we're going to be going to a lot of this when I return. Because that's true of our doctrine. Uh, that God didn't give it to us to, to be a, a trophy on the shelf that we just store away. It's used for something. Now, that might mean it's used to allow us to have a deeper knowledge of who God is so that we will worship him rightly in spirit and truth. That might be what it's for, but that's still for something. That just figuring out the meaning, or rather, you haven't understood the full meaning of a text until you figure out a use for it. Now, when I say a text, that can be misleading because it's, well, how do you break down what a text is? And I would say these coherent, sensible, concrete chunks of complete thoughts. And when you're trying to figure out what, what does this mean? There's a use for it. God didn't just write all of this down and give this to us and, and breathe out this word for us, for us to just sit on it and sit on our hands and just stare at it. But how do we build this bridge? Well, the main thing you do is, is you remember that the Bible gives us a lot of uh, truths about ourselves and the world that we live in. And those things have not changed over time. So we're still sinners. God is still God. The world is still fallen. And we still have to deal with all of those three facts. And that the majority of the things in the Bible are telling us about how to deal with that. Either our relationship with God, our relationship with other sinners, our relationship with the world around us, and what we do with it. So much of the Bible is about that. Let's take Philippi, uh, uh, sorry, Galatians 1, 6 and 9, for example. How many people do you know who are, tur are, are, are turning to a different gospel? Some even think it's the angel from heaven who brought it to them. Mormons and Muslims. They, I mean, that, that's an easy one. They're harder ones, and you find those. But there you go. Easy. There's nothing new under the sun, as uh, the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us. And we must remember this, that... God didn't write the Bible such that it would become outdated simply because we have the internet and medicine and rockets and I can pick up a rectangle off my desk and tap my thumb on it and talk to someone hundreds of thousands of miles away. I'm doing, I mean, I'm talking into a weird piece of plastic right now sitting on my desk and talking to all of you most of you have never seen before 
But that doesn't make the Bible outdated. God isn't surprised by the internet happening. And the Bible is sufficient to, to guide us and help us navigate all of that if we would have eyes to see, if we would apply ourselves diligently to understanding the word, which requires hard work. If you've been sitting here going, man, this is a lot of stuff I need to know in order to try to understand the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, it is. If you want to understand it rightly, you've got to understand the basics of language because it's written in a language. And though translated, you still need to under understanding English will help you understand your Bible better than you trying to pick up Greek. Especially if you didn't, if you struggle with grammar, struggle with that kind of thing, work on it for the sake of knowing your Bible better. The number of people who flop out of English 101 first year of college, I watched it happen in mine, were way too many people just don't understand their own language. If that's not your first language, if it's something else, you have a Bible translation in it that's solid, then apply yourself to that. But getting the basics of language and logic down help you understand your Bible. They help you understand your Bible. So, in the following weeks, next 12 weeks-ish, as I am taking a break, you'll be hearing from Grace Fire and Cademan from the book of Philippians. Hold them accountable to sound principles of hermeneutics. If they rip a verse out of context and go off into the sunset on a hobby horse with it, call them on it. I don't think they will. But do it. And you need to keep an ear out for that kind of thing. If I do it, if Justin does it. Because one of the problems that we have is we're afraid of confrontation. And so when people go off the rails in front of us, we just let it happen. Or we're not paying attention and we're just passively absorbing everything that we hear. And we're getting discipled into a bunch of nonsense and because we're not paying attention. And we don't know what the rules of basic language are, uh, let alone logic. And we just let people get away with saying a bunch of nonsense. Well, we see where that takes us fairly easily by just opening any given social media platform and taking a scroll through on, you know, Transgender Visibility Day or something. Uh, if you saw the prayer to the pronoun God, you know what I'm talking about. That doesn't happen overnight. It happens when people fall asleep in the pew. They're not paying attention to what's being said in the pulpit. So, here you go. Some principles, really basic. There's a lot more that could be said, as always. 
But I hope some of that helps you thinking through when you're studying your Bible, trying to understand what it means when there's a dispute over what a text means. Is everyone playing by the same rules? Are you addressing context? Are you thinking about author and occasion and audience? Are you thinking about the sustained flow of argument? What came before? What came after? Are you using the rest of scripture to understand it? I didn't even need to really talk about scripture, interpreting scripture too much. Um, but when there's a really unclear passage, is there a clear passage somewhere else that addresses the same subject? Then you use that to help you understand the unclear one. Just remember, it is ultimately God who is speaking in these letters, in these epistles. And so we must take great heed to hear what is being said and to respond appropriately. Believing whatever it says we ought to believe, doing what it says we ought to do, and being careful to not be deceived by those who would want to twist that word to have us believe a gospel contrary to the one that is preached in the word. So I will pray and take questions. Lord, thank you for giving us a clear word. Help us to be diligent to understand it to make use of it. Amen. Amen. It's question time. You, y'all probably already know the drill. You gotta type your questions in chat. You have a question. Well, why don't you mosey your way on up here? Um, so I was really curious as to, you mentioned earlier that you thought that Paul was behind Roman, or not Roman, Hebrews in some capacity. Um, I was curious to hear, like, that really struck me because I had heard consistently that Paul was, that, that the author is still unknown. What uh, reason do you have to believe that it was like a sermon or something that was written down? So the reason why people say it's unknown is because it doesn't have a greeting. That's the main reason. Every other epistle has some kind of greeting with the name of the author at the front of it. Hmm. All the others have that. So because it doesn't have a greeting, it just kind of goes. They're like, well, I guess we don't know who the author is. So there's been lots of attempts to connect it to different people. The writing style, the Greek in it is very Lucan. Very much like Luke's. The theology is very Pauline. A lot of stuff that Paul thinks about, talks about, etc. So there's speculation. It does at the end of the day, it doesn't make a huge difference. It really doesn't. So it's not worth fighting about it with people, which is why I just don't it doesn't make a difference as to all that. But there's also some early church fathers who attributed to Paul, which matters a good deal because we often use some of their attributions of the other thing of other authorship of, of anonymous stuff, like some of the gospels 
as hey they were saying that this like we have a consistent line of them saying this is matthew who wrote this um so there's that um the but there's almost unanimous consent uh, or um yeah consent that's the right word uh i think I'm spacing out long day uh that hebrews is a sermon of some kind because it doesn't have it, it doesn't really get very epistle ish till near the very end and even then it's not it, it reads more like a sermon than it does a letter and so the idea is, is that it's a sermon, someone's sermon notes converted to a letter. This was preached somewhere and someone went, this is excellent. And you guys down the road need to hear this. <laughs> and they took their sermon notes and brought it down the road. That's 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 the gist of it. Um, and so there's the idea that this is a sermon Paul preached at one point while Luke was traveling with them and Luke wrote it down. And this is his transcription of what Paul said. Um, the argument, there's different arguments against that, that, well, it doesn't sound much like Paul. Well, Paul preaching probably sounds different from his letter writing. Um, that That's probably the case. I mean, you, you don't preach the same way you write. Not usually anyway, especially not you write a letter to a friend. Timothy, Titus. Um, so there's arguments that you can make against it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But I am... The reason why I like that idea is, one, the historical attestation from the fathers on the authorship of, of it being Paul, to the fact that it was accepted uh one of the main criteria for a book being hey we're going to recognize that this is inspired uh was apostolic authorship right and so i think they thought hebrews was written by paul <laughs> And I think they might be, they might have been right about that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world if I'm wrong about that. But I like to think that that's what happened. But I don't know. Okay. Got it. hello hey what's up so um in philippians you you said uh, ver uh verse eight of chapter one in philippians and then wrote uh read verse uh eight chapter one of galatians care to explain yourself i'm pretty sure i corrected myself i said oh. philippians at first and then i said sorry galatians Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's recorded. If if you're 
you know yeah, I'm it sure. is recorded we'll see we'll see yeah i um, mean it wouldn't surprise me if i mixed it up the other way and i said galatians first and correct myself said philippians because i had both on my brain at the same time um it could have happened i won't put it past myself but okay well the, the meant galatians reveal <laughs> whatever i said i meant galatians yeah i, I just that's what i read it. I, yeah. I, I have an actual question. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I was worried I'm joke. glad. Uh, um, so that uh, so I've heard some people from my church um, say that the NASB um, is a, it's more word for word, where ESV it does a lot more interpreting than the NASB. Is that true? A lot more? No. Okay, but like generally more. Or yeah, yeah. Some more or yeah, on the spectrum, so to speak, of word for word, thought for thought, the ESV is closer to thought for thought than the NASB is. That is that is true. Yeah. Okay. But but but, they, but they're they're really close to each other. If you just read them side by side, you see it. <laughs> um, and that's because they they share a similar root English translation that they're derivative of. Um which was the American standard version. So they're, they're close in language to each other because they started with a similar base. Does that base, uh, oh, this is also something else I've always thought about, or not always thought about, but sorry, I think about recently. Um, people will say like, uh, oh, the liberal denominations are translating certain things different ways. And like we see that in like something like the Queen James Bible, but other translations where it's less subtle. Um, but then you have other people say that conservatives uh, um, translate things to, uh, to suit their uh, ideas or something like that. Um, is if they have the same root, wouldn't the wouldn't they want to not have the same root and rather just take it from the original text? So, so the way that it well, let me clarify what I mean by the same base. They start with a base English, so they don't have to translate everything from the ground up, and then they take the original Greek and they revise the English. So okay. so so they're they're looking at every English word and every Greek word still but they're not having to come up with new English words all the time, but they're still looking at the English and the Greek and saying, is this a accurate representation of what the Greek is saying? They're still doing that work. So they're not just going, ah, we'll just leave most of it. And we just change a couple words and call it a new translation. That's not what they do. Okay. Yeah. So then with the with the other I kind of had two questions in one question with the whole like, oh, they're choosing to translate it this way and that way to suit their own purposes. What's your thoughts on that? So having done minimal translation work myself, I translated a good chunk of Gospel of John. Uh, it almost matched the NASB and the ESV were just exactly. Okay. Yeah. Like, just our, our translations are good. <laughs> the ones that are good are good. They really are. And the folks are like, well, they're using their bias. Da, 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 da. Like, Prove it. 
because I can prove it with the, with the Queen James Bible because there are words that aren't in the original that end up <laughs> in there. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like there you're just, you're just adding things in, taking other things out. When you start chopping, doing that kind of thing, it's like okay, yeah. Now your your like your bias is clear. the The new world translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's very evident because they very selective about how they translate the word worship. Because whenever it's in reference to Jesus, they change it to obeisance, so that Jesus is never worshipped. Except they miss a couple of places, which is why you can use their own translation against them. But that's uh, from the new world from the Jehovah's Witness study that we did. Last year, if you want to hear about that, I won't rabbit trail us, but um, yeah, so there, if you, you can show, if you can show a place where that's done, then do it. The problem is they don't have any anywhere where they can demonstrate that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sorry, I had a cough and then answer. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I think that answered my question. Thank you. Also, also, one more thing. One more thing. Um, you said, uh, you said um, during your study that the uh, um, you said the verse numbers aren't inspired because they weren't there originally. And while I agree with that, you also said that the um, to the King James, it is inspired. Are you saying that truth is subjective to the King James onlyest? You're not teaching next week anymore if you keep this up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to spur on into um, uh, well, no, I, 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 I could hear you trying to not giggle as you said the rest of that, so... Okay. Uh, I know it's not a serious question, so I'm not going to take it seriously. Good. Don't. It wasn't. I was just hoping yeah. to try to rabbit trail that into uh, <laughs> uh -huh. um, into uh, one of those, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, practice evangelism things. Oh, no. I'm not doing those tonight. I've got, oh. my parents are here. So when we're done, I'm done. All right. Well, then I won't bother you anymore. Yeah. You're good. All right. I while he was engaging the shenanigans, I scrolled through and I didn't see uh other things. Oh, let me link the this is the website I was talking about, the Bible Arc one. You actually need to do the tutorials to really understand how to use it. It didn't actually link to it. That's sketchy. I didn't do that. It did fine when I wait, what? Let me try this. Oh, okay. Justin got it. Uh, yeah. Boomer moment. So, yep. I anticipated it. I, I knew when Sango started typing exactly what he was about to type, so I just insulted myself before he could say it so that I wouldn't feel bad when he said it. 
yeah, Bible Arc and uh, Blue Letter Bible is also a great resource. Um, Blue, Blue Letter Bible lets you do. It also has a lot of commentaries built in that you can look at. Some are some good, some bad. Don't I'm not endorsing all of them. Uh, if you can afford Logos Bible software, then great, good for you. You have more money than me. <laughs> but uh, yeah. It's good. I've used it before. When I was in seminary, they gave it to us. How but expensive is the logo software? Too much. <laughs> to to get to get it where it's actually worth it, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. It's really cool, but it's a lot. Study light, never heard of it. Looks Actually, I think I've used it before, but it wants me to disable my ad blocker, so I'm less of a fan of it now. Um, oh, yeah, this is where I, I dug up some Calvin's commentaries. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You can find a lot of really good tools online. Like I said, free tools you can use that will help you. Just be discerning. Don't use something weird. Sometimes your first search will bring up uh, LDS.org or Mormon.org. Don't don't go there because they, they've algorithmed their stuff to where certain searches for Bible stuff will bring them up first. So that's, yeah. But that's about it. Well, doesn't seem like there are any more questions. We can officially be done.